right, so let's begin by um, asking if you've got any questions from the last two weeks. Anything that has struck you? Of course, knowing how frustrating it can be asking me questions, because sometimes I'm going to say, I'm going to address that later on when we get away. But knowing that, do you have any questions? I'll venture one. I just want to ask you, when you were saying, may the Lord watch between you and me while we are absent one from the other, where is that from? And is, is that, it's not kind of a blessing, is it? It's kind of, I don't uh, think it's like a game in the water. No, that's, uh, that was David and Jonathan. Okay. Yeah. You said that means twice. Jonathan, I think, said that today. I think it was a covenant that they made between them. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Well, is there something weird that somebody was like Abraham and Lot or something was saying something like that? But oh, just the, meant they were. I don't trust you. You know, maybe that was. Laban and and Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll explain that again. Okay. Uh, I just saw out my eye two young people with musical instruments. Yeah. Um, if somebody can please get up and ask them not to open the, the doors. Um, if there are doors the other side, that would be fantastic. <laughs> just tell them we're recording. Thanks, Paul. Um, yeah, in that encounter, uh, what's happening, well, let's, let's turn to it, okay, rather than uh, talk around it. It's uh, Genesis, it's uh, around 35, around that. Uh, 31, actually. 31. So, uh, Jacob steals away with his wives and with his goods, and then Laban finds out and is pursuing him. Okay? And so verse 25. Well, we'll just read and I'll say a few things. Maybe I'm overdoing it here. But. Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword. Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with tender and heart. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good or bad and now you have surely gone because you greatly longed for your father's house but why did you steal my gods and then the gods are discovered with Rachel so 
Verse 36. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Said it here before my brethren, uh, my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you, and you know, he tells them all the stuff that's gone on. Verse 42, Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And Laban answered and said to thee, to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to the children whom they have borne? This is a, just a, an old Semitic way of talking. Now therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it as a pillar. And then Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. So if you see what's going on here, uh, they want to make a covenant. And in that covenant, there is a, a meal. Not, there's not always a meal when it comes to a covenant, but here there is a meal. And often covenants took this form. And they're setting up a heap of stones, notice. Which is going to be a token, an emblem of the covenant that's been made. We're in Genesis 31. Uh, verse 47, Je- uh, Laban called it Yegar Sahudutha, but Jacob called it Galib. I like Jacob's name better. <laughs> and Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day, therefore its name was called Galib. Also, Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. That's the oath, okay? That's the agreement. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judged between us, and Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So there's the swearing of the solemn oath, you see? Now it's a very clear uh, oath, a very clearly understood thing. You don't pass beyond this for harm, I don't pass beyond it to harm you. That's what the covenant was for. And my point, remember we went to Galatians 3.15, when it says, even if it's a man's covenant, no one annuls it, and no one changes it. Okay? Now, that's because of the peculiar um, importance of the wording of a covenant. The wording of a covenant is extremely important, because the wording of the covenant is hermeneutical big word for interpretative 
which is a big word itself. Uh, what that means is that a covenant uh, have, contains words that both sides understand. It's not ambiguous. So Laban didn't go away thinking one thing and Jacob thinking another. Moreover, Laban's descendants and Jacob's descendants understood the meaning of that of the wording of that covenants. Therefore, determine the meaning of something of which the, an oath is taken. You see that? That's a human covenant, but it's an illustration of what covenants are basically for. And I said last time that nobody actually asks the question, what are covenants for? You know, if you read all the scholarly works, they all say covenants do this, and covenants were like this. It doesn't say what they were for. Why, why did you have to make one? What was their purpose? And their basic purpose was interpreted around something that's important to both parties. Now, when God swears a covenant oath, he doesn't do it because he's not to be trusted. He doesn't do it because he, he's forgetful, and so he may forget what he, you know, what he agreed upon a thousand years previously, or anything like that. God's yes is yes, his no is no. So why does he make a covenant? He makes a covenant because we have a tendency to A, forget what we've agreed to, to B, to reinterpret and change what was agreed before, and go back on it. So it's something he can call us to, you see? So that's the basic idea of covenant. Because there was some, you know, there was upset between them, and there was strife between them. So it settled the strife. And in fact, in Hebrews 6, remember, we said that a covenant settles strife. It's the end of strife. Yeah. That's what it does. I get that. I'm talking about today when pastors or leaders up in front say that. Say what? May the Lord watch between oh, yeah, and but, me while we are at okay, but, but, one but, from the other. But that's not the covenant. That's not the covenant. Well, well, yeah, all that's happening there is just that uh, they are kind of blessing each other and they're saying that the Lord is witness to what's going to happen. That's all that it is. But I, I know what you're I think what you're saying is that, yeah, what you're saying is that. Um, that's used as a benediction. Right. It's not a benediction. Yeah, it's not a benediction. Alright, let's move on. Alright. So, uh, what we're going to do today, we're going to kind of try and do a few things. 
Um, if you'll turn to Psalm 24, I think we'll start there. And just I'm going to put just put some thoughts in your head, and then we're going to turn to the Mosaic Covenant for a little bit and understand the, how the prophets use and appeal to the Mosaic Covenant. So Psalm 24, you will notice. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn, there's your covenant there, sworn deceitfully. In other words, they have not sworn an oath and then intend to go back on it. Now let's just stop there. What does that tell you about what God thinks about oaths? You make an oath, you better keep it. You make a covenant, you better keep it because God will hold you to it. And if you, bless, if you break it, I mean in this context, if you break it, then you are not a pure hand, you are not a pure heart. So is the vow and covenant the same? Yes. The, what, the, uh, the covenant is uh, the overall name for the agreement. So it's a particular kind of agreement. Okay? And every covenant, the center of the covenant is the oath. Let's take it. Okay? And the oath is specific. And it's this specificity that the covenant is about. Now, the covenant can also include materials that are not in the oath, but are part and parcel of what happens in their context of the making of the covenant. Okay? Why is that important? Well, because in the Abrahamic covenant, which is repeated several times in Genesis uh, well, it first comes in, up in Genesis 15 and then it's in uh, highlighted in 17 18, 22 and then to Isaac and Jacob there are things that are in there that are not part of the oath that God takes for example, circumcision circumcision is given to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis um, and he's got to circumcise, that's a part of um, allegiance to the covenant on his part. It's a token of the covenant, but it's not the covenant itself, it's not the oath. You see? Same as the rainbow in the sky in the Noahic covenant, it's the token of the covenant, but it's not the oath itself. You see? But it's in the context of the covenant. You see that? So the oath is what you're looking for when you're looking for a covenant. If you want to understand what's being agreed to, what's being promised, uh, what's being pledged, it's the oath that you try to pick out. Now, as we saw last course, there are people that say that there is a covenant back in Genesis 1, there's a covenant in Genesis 2, there's a covenant in Genesis 3. Um, but they cannot find the oath. When you ask them, where's the covenant oath? 
they can't say it. They say, well, it's in the form of a covenant. Well, it may or may not be. Covenants that have a certain form, or they took certain forms, but so did promises. And you've got to be careful. If you can't find the oath, you don't know what the covenant was about. So even if there was a covenant there, you don't know what it's about, so you might as well not talk about it. Okay? Does that answer your question? We will get much more specific on this. You'll, you definitely see this more and more as we go through. Okay, so, verse 5, Psalm 24, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So he's going to get righteousness. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your, gate, your gates, O you... Lift up your heads, O you gates, excuse me, and be filled up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your gate, your, your heads, O you gates. I don't know why I'm not talking about <laughs> Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So you have here kind of a, 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 a connection between the gates and God's holy hill. Uh, the righteousness of the people who can uh, invite God into it and God himself coming in. And he, notice how he comes in. He comes in as the Lord of hosts. He comes in as one who has overcome in battle. Do you see that? Yes. So, in the context in which this is given, this would have not been understood in a spiritual sense, heavenly way. This would have been understood in a covenantal way, uh, by David, who writes it, as God coming in to reign in his city, everlasting, in uh, fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. And he does it after vanquishing his enemies. Do you see that? That's why he comes in after battle. So, that being the case, what we have here is two particular elements that you might look for as we go through. Uh, well, no, three. Uh, the first one is salvation. Salvation. Okay? Righteousness. Clean heart. The second one is that God comes in seemingly to reign as the Lord. May, notice how it starts here. The earth is the Lord's. Talking about the earth. And then, thirdly, but he comes in after he's vanquished his enemies. Those three things you're going to see in the prophets repeatedly. There's another thing that you're going to see, which is not in here, and that is that God's going to kick Israel around for the time of prosperity, for the time of peace. Sometimes that 
chicken, if we can call it that. Sometimes, sometimes that's put before the promise of the Redeemer, and sometimes it's put after. You know, a Redeemer will come, but, you know, you've got to go through this first. So you're going to see this in the prophets as we move forward. But this, this was understood even in David's time. Um, there was something else that I wanted to mention here. I can't think of it, so we're going to move on. Let's, uh, let's go to um, Micah, book of Micah. Minor prophets. After Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. What you find in some of the prophets is a um, a judicial motif. That God is is acting like a judge and he is saying um, he's condemning Israel for, for not keeping to his law. And he's reasoning with them in that way, a judicial way. You find this in the prophet Micah. Um, just some things in chapter 7. Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who bring vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which is my soul, which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among them. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. What's the picture? What's the picture of society that's being painted? Totally wicked. <laughs> yeah, it's an immoral society. Everybody's out for his own gain, and they basically get their gain by preying on other people. So this is a people that is being described as, as drifting far from the law, drifting far away from the ethics that they swore to in the Mosaic Covenant. And it describes this more and more about the prince and the judge and um, you know, everybody is is uh, in trouble and because of this, there's no peace. Because of this, there's nothing but anxiety. Verse 5 Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are uh, the men of his own household. Jesus quoted some of this tribulation message. But in this context, it's also a description of what's going on in Micah's time. Notice, though, the connection between fear and anxiety and a lack of moral uprightness and lack of integrity. 
in the people. You see that? Oh yeah. We live in an anxious age, don't we? Oh yeah. Ourselves. We live, you know, people in this country are anxious about lots of things. And uh, yet, at the same time, morally, they're making decisions and pursuing courses which are, you know, going away from God, going away from biblical mores, going away from standards of absolute morality. And they're going into more and more subjectivity and relativism and uh, emotion rather than truth. And it's creating, you see, this, this angst in society. So what was going on then is going on now. You know? Although in uh, Israel, Israel's under covenant with God. America isn't, folks. <laughs> That's a very important difference between the two, okay? Because Israel was in covenant to God, God was going to judge them. America is not in covenant to God, so it doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to judge us just because we veer away from biblical morals. By the way, at the time that the Constitution was written, there were less people going to church in America than any other time in American history. So, uh, I, why do I say that? I'm kind of drifting into another field here, but, but uh, A, I said it because I wanted to, and B, I said it <laughs> because uh, I don't want you to be fearful. I don't want you to read these texts uh, with America in your head. I want you to read the texts with Israel in the Old Testament, under covenant in your head. But look at verse 7. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. Here's uh, the way. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy, for when I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Um, so what we have in a passage like this is that we have a, a passage where people are drifting away from God and then there are a few people that are remembering God. And the prophet is inveighing against the nation that's going against God and going against the covenant that's made. Alright? Are we have okay with that? Yeah. Uh, verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 6 of Micah this is an important text he has shown you O man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God what does the Lord require of you? Well, there were 613 statutes in the, um, in the law. But God didn't require that you profess 613 rules. Okay? God required this. 
it required that you treat people well. You did what is good, you were just, you were merciful, and you were humble before God. So that's why Jesus could boil everything down to love God and love your neighbor. You see? So, what are the prophets concerned with then most when it comes to the Mosaic Covenant? Are they concerned with the ceremonial aspects of the covenant? You know, the sacrifices and all of that. Well, they mention it. We'll see from Isaiah in a minute that they mention it. They talk about it. Isaiah talks about it. Malachi, we'll talks about it. But that's not really their central concern. Their concern is the morality of the people offered. Their concern is the hypocrisy of the people that are offering these sacrifices. So they weren't concerned with calling people back to the sacrificial system. They weren't concerned so much about that aspect of the law. Okay? You don't find the prophets really talking about that stuff very much. Um, they were concerned with the ethical aspects of worshipping God and trusting God and loving one another. Isaiah chapter 1, if you turn there. So Isaiah comes out of the starting gate and you know he's not blowing kisses. <laughs> he's he comes straight at them. Um, verse two Hear O heavens and give ear O earth. What's he doing there? Have you ever considered that that phrase? Hear O heavens, give ear O earth. What's what's happening there, do you think? What's Listen, up. Doing? Listen up. Listen <laughs> up. No, but he's doing more than that. Yeah. Like you're calling a witness between God and man. Not so much God, but the, heaven is the creation. creation. Mm-hmm. He's calling God's creation that is made for man as a witness against what man is doing. Uh, take Genesis 1 seriously. The earth is made for man. Man is supposed to function in it in a certain way. So hear, O heavens. Give ear, O earth. Look at what man is doing. So, the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. They have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my, does not know my people do not consider. Uh, notice that they don't know, they don't consider. There's parallelism there, but notice that the one reflects the other. If you don't consider something, you don't know it. You see that? If you don't think about it, you don't know it. It's just a piece of data. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corrupted. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger. 
the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backward. God's brought them a certain way, you see, and they've they turned back from following. That's the idea. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by, Satan, by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts has left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. Or what happened to them? They were utterly obliterated. So what's the prophet saying here? What he's saying is, unless God had been faithful, your declension, your sin, would have made God destroy you. So, there's a contrast between God's faithfulness and the recalcitrance of, uh, of the people of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. <laughs> That's uh, sarcasm. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord, I have enough, had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fattest fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? That's how he visits it. You're coming in all your finery, you're coming with your ceremony, you're coming with your sacrifices, but you're trampling on my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. For your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn, we might even say relearn, to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Where's the onus here of the prophet? He's just said, I don't like your sacrifices. Okay? Don't like your sacrifices. Hypocritical. But he doesn't say, uh, sort yourselves out and offer them according to the law. He's more focused here on social justice. It's alright, not a liberation theologian, don't get me wrong. But he's interested in, in the right treatment of people. 
And so he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Um, this is how you reason with God. You agree with him. <laughs> you agree with what he said. Reasoning is you shutting your mouth and listening to what God says and saying, yes, I agree with him. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. That's what reason is. Because God is absolute reason. He's always pure rationality. He's always going to do that which is logical and which is right and that is true and that is just. So therefore, if you're acting reasonably and rationally as a creature of God, you'll agree with God. Do you see that? Amen. And if you disagree with God, you're irrational. Yep. You're unreasonable. And you won't find any answers until you start agreeing with God. So, here's Isaiah, and he's... Um, can you imagine him preaching this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Not easy being from yeah. And what he's saying is that it's all a bunch of hypocritical nonsense. God hates it. And um, you need to repent. You need to learn to do justice. Um, God is concerned, therefore, with the way that we treat one another. He's concerned for people. He looks at how we treat one another. So when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to cover up his crimes by having Uriah murdered, we should read this sometime in 2 Samuel 13. Um, God is concerned. He brought all of that trouble on David. Rape of Tamar, the perfection of Absalom, the eventual slaying, um, you know, the uh, um, usurping of David's succession rights and so on. All of these awful things that happened, why did they happen? Because of what David had done to Uriah and his life. Not just because of the adultery. It is because of the fact that he had Uriah killed. That's what God said. You should read it. It's interesting. Well, we have. Let's emphasis on that. We haven't forgotten So God cares for that that stuff. Alright. Verse um where are we at here in Isaiah? We're not in, in good territory, are we? Oh, I mean, God doesn't like what's going on. Look at verse 21. The faithful city has become a harlot. But look at this. Verse 20, uh, 25. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. I will take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first, 
and your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. He's talking about Jerusalem. Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Here's your, this is salvation, the name of judgment. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired. And you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. So, we have judgment, we have salvation, don't we? And who's going to bring about the salvation? Who's going to redeem Israel? And who's going to redeem Jerusalem? God himself is going to do it, do you see? God himself has to do it. Um, I'm sure this isn't news to any of you, but unless God had... Uh, pursued you and loved you beforehand and called you to himself you'd be lost that's right you'd be lost now by the way uh, someone said well after Calvinism no it didn't Arminius believed that too Um, that's just what the Bible teaches he loved us before we loved him Um, unless the, God comes and God saves, we will always be at enmity with God. We will always go our own, our own way. Or the way that I like to put it, we, our default setting is independence from God. God must come to us, he must pursue us, he must bring us to himself. Okay? The mechanics of that... You can argue about, but it, it is him who is the first one. He makes the ocean. Alright. So, in the prophets, um, don't need to go to Malachi. No. In the prophets, what we see is that the prophets, the writing prophets, are concerned with certain aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. They are calling Israel back to the Mosaic Covenant that they made. And they're saying, look, look at all the stuff, the stuff that's happening. Look at the fear, look at the destruction, you know, look at the, the uh, reversals and all of the things that are happening to you. Where's your prosperity? Where is uh, your peace or shalom? Where is it? Well, you've defected from God. You say God wants to call you back. That's what the prophets were doing as preachers in the day. But that wasn't all they were doing. They were also saying that God would eventually pursue them and after bringing them through a bunch of trouble, purging their dross away, (laughs) he would redeem them. Wasn't considered, weren't really uh, bothered about the ceremonial aspects as we've we seen, other than, than the, the fact that they were being hypocritical. Um, 
Let me see. Oh, yeah. Despite the um, rebellion of, of Israel and the people, their hypocritical allegiance to the law did do something. What it did is that it kept them separate. It kept them separate when they were in battle. They did not, well, not many of them, they did not merge into the societies and disappear, as many people have done in the, the ages. They kept themselves separate. Down uh, through, you know, modern times in the Middle Ages and so on, they kept themselves separate. I mean, they were distinguished apart. Even in Jesus' time, well, very much in Jesus' time, they were very proud of the fact that they were Jewish, they were the chosen people, and um, Rome was the oppressor, but they were God's people. So they kept themselves separate because of that. So the Mosaic Covenant at least did this. It preserved Israel as Israel. Do you see that? Because of God's faithfulness. God could have just turned his back away from Israel and said, well, well, hold on. He could have done it in the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, he could have turned his back on Israel and said, I'm going to have no, nothing to do with him. But he didn't because he was faithful. And he was faithful because of what? His love. No, 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 I want specific. Oh, his word? What? What covenant? The Mosaic? No! The Abrahamic. Oh. Right. The Mosaic covenant was contingent upon them obeying, and they didn't obey. Oh, right, right. The Abrahamic covenant, which was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants, was unconditional. Do you see? Unconditional. God was prepared to make a nation of Moses. Yes, he was, but he was. Your people. And yeah. Moses turned around and said, No, your people. On the basis of what? The Abrahamic covenant. Moses appealed to the Abrahamic covenant. That's right. So you find this in the prophets. Well, unconditional love. That's right. All right. I'm particularly concerned here with. Yeah, with the covenantal aspects of things. That's you get. All right. Um, we know from Paul's letters, but we should know anyway from just knowing our own hearts, that the Ten Commandments, for example, it's impossible to keep them. It's impossible for us to keep them. You have to be absolutely righteous in order to be righteous enough to fulfill them. We're not. So the only thing that the law does is it shows us up of deserving of death and the judgment of God. Romans chapter 7. So, um, so what the law does is condemn. It's good. We're just not good. So the law, which is in the Mosaic Covenant, you see, because it's a covenant, as long as God holds on to that covenant, we're doomed, or Israel's doomed. Yes? Yeah. But God doesn't hold on to it. 
second. Thus, one day he's going to do something himself to make Israel righteous. And he's going to make what? A new covenant. A new covenant. Not like the old covenant. <coughs> Alright. Let's have a look at that. Isaiah chapter 2. A little bit here. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, what's the Lord's house? Temple. The temple. Shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations, not necessarily just Israel, all nations shall flow to it. Uh, when it talks about the, uh, the mountain being uh, established on the top of the mountains, it's, that's not necessarily saying that it's going to be the highest mountain. It's just saying it's going to be the, ex- the exalted place of God. It could be the highest mountain in the uh, renovated earth, but I'm not sure. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Jacob is Israel. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law there being the teaching, the Torah, the instruction. Now this law here is not necessarily exactly the same as the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is good, but the Mosaic law also included some stuff that the New Covenant doesn't necessarily include. But the ethical, at least the ethical standards of the law, will never change, will we? I'll come back to that. Remind me to come back to that. And therefore, the law will always continue. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So you've got blessing of the nations and of Israel, uh, the house of God in Jerusalem on a holy hill, people flowing up to it. And this happens after the nations have stopped fighting each other. Something has happened, you see, to stop this, to stop wars. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So, what you find here in, uh, in this passage is people who now have the law of God that they're going to obey. They're righteous. They're law-abiding. They're worshipping God. They're at peace with one another. And Jerusalem is the centre of it all. There's the picture. So elements, what do we have? Salvation. We have a time of, of obviously, there's battles and trouble, but that's going to get, get sorted out. You have a time of of uh, 
peace with the Lord being present. See these elements again? When Isaiah said this, and when the people heard him, they did not think about the church. They weren't. They thought about Jerusalem. They thought about the temple. They thought about um, God reigning and the nations coming to Jerusalem. That's what they thought of. That's, by the way, what he said. Moreover, he had, I hope you can notice, uh, if they're all coming to the house of God, that, which is a temple, then you need people to officiate in the temple, don't you? You need priests in the temple. Let's just, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but let's just ask the question, how, how does God ensure that there will be priests in a uh, circumstance of an environment like this. How is that ensured? How do... Sorry? Yeah, but the line of evil, we just read about the line of Levi. What were they doing? He hated this, So how does God ensure that the priests are up to the job? Priestly covenant. Thank you. The priestly covenant. Priestly covenant. Okay, he's made a covenant and an oath to Phineas, Numbers 25. Yeah. Numbers 25. It's very specific. He's entered into it. Phineas didn't have to do anything. God's going to keep it. It's an everlasting covenant. So God's going to come through on it. Now, why did he just promise it? Well, because God makes covenants to tell us um, that he's really, really going to do it. So we better pay attention to it. Yeah. That's right. See, because we have a tendency not to, you know, not to believe it. So that's why it's covenant. What do the covenants do? Now, I covenant. Okay, it's a uh, can't draw, but it's a signpost. Okay, no blood. Uh, there's blood, blood ever. What's it doing? What's it telling you? What's that covenant doing? It's telling you to expect or not expect something. Okay? For how long? Forever. Forever. Okay? It's telling you then something that God is not going to do forever. So, as long as you've got what the oath is saying, you can check it off your list. It's not going to happen. No more global flood. So, because of that... You see, it, it impacts the rest of the history of Earth. Yes? Oh, yeah. <coughs> same with the Abrahamic covenant, the same with the priestly covenant. Make an everlasting covenant of peace with you, Phineas, and with your descendants. Okay, so because he's done that, you can expect something in the future. The same with the Abrahamic covenant. The land is given to them, chapter 15. 
the seed through Isaac and Jacob and the blessing on the nations. These things must happen. Not just one of them. The blessing on the nations. They must all happen because they're all covenanted. Do you see? So what have you, what have you got if you're paying attention? Um, how would I draw this? Oh. Making it up. Here's history, and here is expectation. Too well in fulfillment? Actually, I think it doesn't matter. Because even if it was one L in America, I think it's two L's in England. <laughs> 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 but you see, if, you, if you're plotting these covenants, they're telling you what to expect. Okay? Alright. Yes? Wouldn't this section of the Mosaic wouldn't that make perfect sense to them? Because that's what they were supposed to be doing anyway. They were supposed to be, in, they were established to be a nation of priests, they were established to be this. And to me, it's like Isaiah 7 saying, This is, this is the future when it's truly fulfilled. Um, in essence, that's what they were supposed to be doing. Yes, although. Were supposed to be yeah. Um, I'm going to answer that. But the priest that he's talking about, although he's inferring here, is not the whole house of Israel. It's the Levitical priesthood in the temple. But he does say in other passages that he will come up against that the whole nation will be a light Gentile. The whole nation will be seen and people will grab hold of a Jew and say, let us come. You see in fact, I guess you do see that, don't you? Uh, many people just say, come and say, let us uh, go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. So in a sense, Israel is acting as a beacon, isn't it? Um, and drawing people, which is in fulfillment of Exodus 19. Yes. So, okay. <clears throat> chapter 9. I'm just doing a couple of things here to kind of orient ourselves. Amos chapter 9. I told you to read this. <clears throat> so it's a weird chapter. Amos is kind of a weird book. And he sees God, and this is a theophany that he sees. You know, he sees God in human form. And uh, I won't go through the whole of the chapter, but verse 11 says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages, 
I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Please note that. Edom and Midian and so on. And God doesn't like them very much. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. I shall. Okay? And then he says this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So what's going on here? How would you describe that? Prosperity. Yes, prosperity. Um, productivity of the land. I mean, hyper-productivity of the land. Um, the days are coming. Well, they haven't, they haven't come yet. This hasn't happened. Really being blessed. But look at it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land. Their land. Whose land? Well, Amos, all of them. Amos is going to is wrapping his saber next to them. He's having a go at them. <laughs> you can just read the beginning of the book. What do you mean their land? Isn't God turned them out of the land? Or is God going to turn them out of the land? He promised. Their land. He promised their land. Say it's promised, of course. It's, yes, it's promised. <laughs> promised land. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. What covenant is that? Abraham. Abraham covenant. You see? Here's a time when Israel will go back to their land. Amos is writing before Babylonian captivity. Um, in fact, he's writing before the Assyrian captivity too. And um, but they'll be brought back, and they won't be plucked up again. So that's not talking about Nehemiah. That's not talking about Israel. Okay? It's a rubble. Because they were plucked up and dispersed in the 2nd century AD by Hadrian. It's not talking about uh, now, where Israel is since 1948 back in the land. But I'm not going to tell you why, but we will look to the fact that Israel will have to be booted out of the land. But eventually they will be brought back. And they, they will be planted in their land and they will always be in their land. Okay? So, um, we understand that what we're seeing, therefore, is there's this, always this ethical constraint or obligation that's placed upon nation of Israel. Are you pointing something out that you want to ask me about? I'm just not hearing real well. Oh, I'm sorry. With this fan. Oh. Did you say 
that will plant them in their land. Did you say that was not Israel? No, no it is Israel. Okay, okay. Not Sorry. But not, not Israel today. Right, right. Okay. Right. Uh, so, the prophets in the time appeal to the Mosaic Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant, they're, they're, they're messing up, they fail. The prophets, you know, they don't succeed in calling Israel back. Even the great reforms of Josiah don't do it, do they? Um, so, the idea of prophets as foretellers only, just preachers, okay, is not the entirety or even the main aspect of what a prophet is. I hope you can see so far, even from these selected passages, that the prophet's main job is to point out, first of all, God's condemnation on Israel, but then to point to a part of what God will do with Israel. It's prophetic. It's, <laughs> it's predictive. It's, it's uh, futuristic. That's the main part of their ministry. <clears throat> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Maybe some people who read and say, say they're already there. But they don't have all the cable. Now, why would they say they're already there? Well, you say, you, let me repeat to you, Ken, what you said, and then I'll let you answer them. And then I, I will give you the answer I would give to them. Okay? So you said they would read this and they would say they're already there. Okay, so since 1948, has the. Um, has the plowman overtaken the reaper? Trevor Craig's in the South Sea. The mountains grip sweet wine, bringing back the captives of Israel, and so on. Has, uh, has this actually happened? I didn't. I wasn't trying to apply. No, I, I know you weren't. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm, I'm saying some people would look at this. And they say, would. This already happened. They would. And my reply to them would be this You're not reading the passage. But I had to that because you know they had, they had not all the land promised to them. Yeah, we can, but that's not what that's we're not talking what about here. Yeah, but we will look at that. Yeah, there's an awful lot more to do. Remember what we're doing is putting a picture together at the moment. And so you listen to these things, you get what you can from what's said, you log it away, and then you'll find other prophets and other passages of scripture add to the picture. And so you come up with more and more of a picture, and more and more of your questions are answered. And then it comes together, and you see that there's a cohesion between these prophetical pronouncements. And remember what, what did I say? I think it was last week. I said, I'm trying to build a picture that will give you an expectation, something along the lines of the expectation that the disciples of Jesus had. Right? Now, since, uh, since we're there, let me uh, move a little closer um, to this. Uh, go to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And again, I'm just putting this in there maybe to help you to 
fashion some things together and help you um, bring these strands together. So, the former account I made of Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of can somebody read that at the end of that Speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay, so what's here's the risen Christ, and what's he teaching them about? The kingdom of God. Yes, it's not. It's not difficult. Who's the best teacher that ever lived? Jesus. What you have to do to be a decent teacher, I'm a half decent teacher. What do you have to do to be a decent teacher? Know your material. Know your material. What? Not here. No, no, no. To be a decent teacher. Be a good communicator. Communicate. Yeah, be a decent communicator. Yeah. Yeah. So he's communicating to the disciples who've already been with him three years. That's all right, John. Yeah, had a good go. <laughs> hey, we're all about resurrection and census. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's just let's give him let's give him uh, a, you know two fingered ripple for at least being honest. Um, so um, so they've been with him for three three and a half years already, and now he's teaching them about the kingdom of God again. By the way, do you think they were paying attention? There he is. I mean, he's risen. Good grief. <laughs> Resurrected. Look at this. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord... Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? What's he been teaching them about? Kingdom of God. Kingdom. <laughs> what are they asking about? The kingdom. Yeah. Are they stupid? No. No. <laughs> no, they're not stupid. They want, what are they asking, by the way? They have an expectation, don't they? Exactly. Yes, they have an expectation. Very good. What are they asking about? I know they're asking about the kingdom, but what specifically are they asking The earthly kingdom in Israel, and what? When the timing. The timing. Okay, so if they've got it wrong, first of all, they are dumb. Or he's the worst teacher that ever lived. Because he's, he's had three and a half years plus the advantage of resurrection in order to tell them clearly what he meant. Okay? But he's not, obviously. He's the best teacher. 
And he's the clearest teacher. And they're not dumb. So, but he could, one more time, just before he goes off, one more time, he could put up with their not getting it and say, look, haven't you got it yet? I'm not talking about the literal kingdom of Israel. But he didn't do that. He said, I know you expected this stuff, okay? But I'm not talking about that. He didn't do that. He said this, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. What was the answer about? What was, how did he answer it? What was the specific of his reply? If you paraphrase it, how would you Just the time, it? not the... Yeah. Just the time, not the... So it's not for you to know the time. What did they ask about? The time. The time! <laughs> yeah. He didn't correct them at all. He just said, it's not for you to know. Now, um, they, that means they had an expectation of a literal future kingdom of Israel even after the resurrection. When we get to the New Testament, we get to the Gospels, you're going to see that there's a very good reason they had that. Jesus reinforced it again and again and again and again. And they had all of this prophetic witness to back them up too. They could point to all this stuff. So I, I say that just so that you can see that that's where we're driving at here. I'm trying to get you into a position where your expectation reflects that question. Now, if when we get there again and we ask that question, um, I've not made a case, and you think, ah, they didn't get it, it's a dumb question, and you think John Calvin was right to call them stupid. Okay? Then, fair enough, and you think it's, he's referring to the church. Fair enough, that's, that's okay. But, but I think you'll see that they had every reason in the world to ask that question. I'd have asked it too. So, um, let's see. I've also said uh, to read Hosea 2. So if you'll read Hosea, if you'll come to Hosea 2 with me, and we'll close with Hosea 2. first part, it reflects, it's kind of something like um, Isaiah 1. You know, they've gone against it, they've, they've uh, been a harlot against God. Verse 8 says, she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. No understanding, you see. The offerings, the very offerings they were given to a false god were given to them by the true god. Yeah. 
and then he's going to take away all of their stuff, destroy their vines, verse 12, punish her, verse 13, because she forgot me, 13b. Now look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Acor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, notice that word, that word in there, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the name of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. What is what's that? That's the animal kingdom. You see? That's an animal kingdom. In Amos, what you had is you had productivity. You had the, the, uh, the vines and so on being blessed. Here, you have the animal kingdom being blessed at this particular time. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth. What does that remind you of? Something you read earlier tonight. Oh, yeah, the plowshares. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Very good, you see. To make them lie down, and here's a key word, safely. Safely. You're going to see this over and over again in the prophets. Okay? Time of safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine and with oil. They shall answer just real. I will sow her for myself in the earth in heaven, in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Paul uses that in the book of Romans. Some people say he's talking about the church. No, he's not. In the context, he's not. <clears throat> but here, I hope you can see, uh, time of judgment, then God alluring her, God coming up, Israel. Um, blessings of righteousness, peace, a covenant made with them. This can't be the Mosaic covenant, they can. This is another covenant that's being made with them. Blessings of the animal kingdom. 
By the way, is there a covenant that deals with the animal kingdom? Is there a covenant that was made with the animals and so on? And kind of <coughs> that? Yes, the Noahic covenant, didn't it? Yeah, that, that was made with the whole earth. Um, noble war and betrothal to God, righteousness, justice, long kindness, mercy. That's salvation language. That's ultimate salvation language and blessing on the earth. Um, so on. And then the fecundity of the land. Uh, bringing forth all of this um, produce. This is the kind of expectation you see. You do see the denunciations of Israel from God. But it doesn't stop there. He said, but there will be a time. You see? There is an expectation that's laid down by the prophets of a future time when all of these things will come together for the nation. Why? Because they're all covenantally bound. Alright, any questions or any uh, observations? I have a question about Jezreel. Yes. Hosea uh, talks about Jezreel in chapter 1. Yes. Hates Gomer as his wife. He has a son and they named him Jezreel. Yes. It's a reference to Israel, but it also seems to be a reference to Hosea. And then verse 22 mentioned again. It's a city. Um, but it's also like. It's a place. 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 Uh, Joel talks about the valley of Jezreel, the valley of decision, chapter 3. Well, I we just don't know what Jezreel meant, and it said that uh, it means that God scatters Scattering. and that God sows. So it has a double meaning. Yes. That's what knows, yeah. And yeah, what's going on with Hosea is that he is acting part of God in you know, in fear, in marrying Gomer. She's a harlot. <laughs> and she leaves and he takes her back. What's, the, what's that? An illustration. An illustration of God's relationship to Israel. You see? So it fits in with what we read. The denunciation, and uh, the first part of chapter 2 of Hosea is that, you know, you've, you've gone up and and played the harlot, but I've got to allure you back and bring you back, you see. Um, look at verse 10, by the way, of chapter 1. Um, after all of the denunciation, he says this, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sound of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. What's that an illusion? That's actually a quotation. Abraham. The Abraham. You see? So even though there's the other denunciations, God never forgets the Abrahamic covenant. Neither should we. Alright. Any more questions? He is faithful, like he said on the onset. He says what he means, and he means what he says. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, 
Because of because of this, um, we what, what we can take away from this is not just uh, important theological and doctrinal teaching, as important as that is, but what we can take away from this is the kind of God that He is. Yes. Okay. Um, what helps me? In fact, this is, God encourages to do that because he's actually done it with Hosea. He's chosen a person now to act it out. See? And people looking at Hosea were thinking, how on earth can he put up with that woman? How on earth can he take it back? <coughs> but that's a picture of God. And do you not think, like I think, how on earth can he take me back? How on earth can he uh, forgive me? How on earth can... Why does he keep putting up with me? You see? And I don't even feel like I can go to him. I don't even feel... I've just disappointed him again. I've messed it up again. And so I don't... My, the, the propensity is to think that God is like a man and just say, I'm fed up. I'm fed up of you. That's enough. Canterbury, I've just said enough. You just, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. And I can't and don't want a relationship with you anymore. But you see, God isn't like that. He's long suffering. The, the Hebrew word is chesed. It's a, he, is a, he has a loyal love. Basically, one loyal commitment. It's pictured in the history of Israel. And he's the same God today, yesterday, forever. He doesn't change, and therefore that's what he's like with us as well. Okay? So, yes, we're going to mess up. Yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to um, go away from him. And then we're going to have times when we're okay, and then times when we slip away again. And depending on how we get out of bed in the morning, depends on whether we greet him or not, or ignore him, but he will be faithful to us. Because he's better than us. Way better. <laughs>